0: Good morning, friends and family. God bless you, each and every one. Thank you once again for joining me in this study. We are now in the Gospel of John, chapter twenty, verses nineteen through thirty-one. And I actually am so excited. I have, I have loved John. I love every every book in the Bible, but um, I think I. In fact, I know I have one more chapter of John. We're going to do chapter 21. I actually hope to get that done today and hope to begin in Revelations next week. That is going to be so exciting for me. You know, the Bible says in Revelations, whoever reads that book is blessed. And um, I know that we're going to be blessed by it. We're going to be blessed by the Word of God and just digging in deeper and asking God to fill us up, pour us out as a drink offering, amen, even as Jesus was poured out for the people. So in saying that, I just want to bless you each and every one. Thank you for joining me. This chapter, John 20, 19 through 31, entitled The Power of His Resurrection. You know the news that that Jesus was alive again it spread to it spread among all his followers at first with some hesitation but then with enthusiasm even his disciples did not believe the first reports and Thomas demanded proof but wherever people were confronted with the reality of his resurrection their lives were transformed. In fact, the same transforming experience, it can be yours today. If you if your life has not been transformed by Jesus Christ, that same transforming experience can be yours. And as you see in John 20 verses 19 through 31, the changes that took place in the lives of people, ask yourself this question, have I personally met the risen christ have i met him because if you haven't you need to and can you yes am i delusional no has he changed my life yes actually when i was 16 years old and i i was i will give my testimony at some point i was an unchurched child and didn't know anything about God, except I I just somehow believed in my heart that there was a God up there in the sky somewhere. That was my idea of God. But as I said, I was unchurched, but but a believer. And, and at 16 years old, um, we lived out in the country, and a pastor came around inviting people to come to his church. He was starting in a old building out in the country there that was actually at one time a hardware store and it had been condemned by the county and he set up a church in there and and that sunday that he was coming around and inviting everyone he was going to start well my my mother asked me she said well do you want to go to church sunday and i thought well you know yeah I'll, I'll go. I didn't even really know what going, well, what it was like to go to church. I had never been to church. I think when my mother was, when I was like, let me think, in the picture, I was probably four or five years old. I saw my mother had one picture that I ever saw where she dressed us up and it was at Easter time and took us to church. So, that so that's my story but I'm telling you what at 16 years old that morning that very first morning in a church having never heard the gospel having never known the lord i the presence of god just came over me and filled my life i was broken i was repentant and i didn't even know i was a sinner <laughs> so you know what God does the miraculous when he's 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 he wants to reveal himself to us he revealed himself to me that day and I did receive the Lord as my personal savior and I had my ups and downs through life but there were times that I kind of cooled off from the Lord and it would be a longer testimony than what I just gave but um as I went and and You know, kept coming back to that place of service to God, service to God and loving the Lord and wanting to know more about God. And, you know, it was a, it was a quite a process. But in saying that, if you have not met him, you need to meet him personally. You need to meet him personally. He will change your life And, you know, I've heard some people say, well, I don't want my life changed, but I do want to go to heaven. Well, you know what? Your life is going to change if you invite Christ into your heart, into your life, and you believe on him. And it's going to change because you're going to become, begin to become like him. And he was just... Full of goodness and fruit, love and joy and peace and all that's good. And, um, and we're not born into that. We're born into sin. We're born into very, very much flesh, carnality. And, uh, you know, that's, that's our life until we come to know Jesus Christ. Okay, I'll stop there because I could go on for a long time. I'm 74 years old, so I have a lot of life I could tell, a lot of stories I could tell you, a lot of things I've been through, a lot of trials I've been through, a lot of blessings I've been through. But I'll stop here. So anyway, in chapter 20, verses 19 through 25, our Lord rested in the tomb on the Sabbath and rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Many people, they sincerely, they call Sunday the Christian Sabbath, but most of us know that Sunday is not the Sabbath day, actually. The seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath commemorates God's finished work of creation, and I I believe it was on Saturday, not Sunday. Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3, the Lord's Day commemorates Christ's finished work of redemption or called, quote, the new creation. God the Father worked for the six days and then rested. God the Son suffered on the cross for six hours and then rested. God gave the Sabbath to Israel as a special sign that they belonged to him. The nation was to use that, that day for physical rest and refreshment, both for man and for and beast, for man and for beast. For, but for Israel it was not commanded as a special day of assembly and worship. Unfortunately, the scribes and Pharisees added all kinds of restrictions to the Sabbath observance until it became a day of bondage instead of a day of blessing. Jesus deliberately violated the Sabbath traditions, though he honored the Sabbath day. There were at least five resurrection appearances of our Lord on that first day of the week. He uh, appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the other women. That's what they're called in the Bible, in Matthew 28. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to, to um, let's see, the two Emmaus disciples. And he appeared to the disciple, the dis- all the disciples. See John 20, minus Thomas. Thomas was not there. The next Sunday, the disciples met again, and Thomas was with them. So it would appear that the believers from the very first they met together on Sunday evenings which came to be called the Lord's Day if you look up Revelations 1 verse 10 it appears that the early church met on the first day of the week to worship the Lord and commemorate His death and resurrection. The Sabbath was over when Jesus arose from the dead. He arose on the first day of the week. See Matthew 28, 1, see Luke 24 1, and see John 20, verse 1. The change from the seventh day to the first day was not affected by some church decree it was brought about from the beginning by the faith and the witness of the first believers for centuries the jewish sabbath had been associated with law six days of work and then you rest but the lord's day the first day of the week is associated with grace so first there is faith in the living christ then there will be works There's no evidence in Scripture that God ever gave the original Sabbath command to the Gentiles or that it was repeated for the church to obey. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the church epistle, but the Sabbath commandment is not repeated. Paul makes it clear that believers must not make, quote, special days, a test of fellowship or spirituality. See Romans 14 5 and Colossians 2 16 through 23. So how did our Lord transform his disciples fear into courage? For one thing he came to them and we don't know where these ten frightened men met behind locked doors, but Jesus came to them and reassured them. In his resurrection body, he was able to enter the room without opening the doors. It was a solid body, for he asked them to touch him, and he even ate some fish. But it was a different kind of body, one that was not limited by what we call the laws of nature. It's remarkable that these men were actually afraid. The women had reported to them that Jesus was alive and the two Emmaus disciples had added their personal witness. It's likely that Jesus had appeared personally to Peter sometime that afternoon, though Peter's public restoration would not take place until later in John 21 and that's the next chapter that we'll do to complete the gospel of John no wonder Jesus uh, reproached them at that time was their unbelief with their unbelief and their hardness of heart see Mark 16 14 But His first word to them was the traditional greeting, shalom, peace. He would have rebuked them for their unfaithfulness and cowardice the previous weekend, but He did not. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, the Bible says in Psalms 103, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. So the work on the cross is peace. And the message they would carry would be the gospel of peace. Man had declared war on God in Psalms 2. Excuse me. But God would declare peace to those who would believe. Not only did Jesus come to them, but he reassured them. He showed them his wounded hands and his side and gave them opportunity to, to, to discover that it was indeed their master, and he was not a phantom. The Gospels do not record wounds in his feet, but Psalms 22.16 indicates his feet were nailed to the cross. But the wounds meant more than identification. They also were evidence that the price for salvation had been paid, and man indeed could have peace with God. The basis for all our peace is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He died for us. He rose from the dead in victory. And now he lives for us. In our fears, we cannot lock him out. He comes to us in grace and reassures us through his word. In Proverbs 27, 6, he Assures us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. When Jesus saw that the disciples, their fear, and had had now turned to joy, he commissioned them. He said, "As my Father hath sent me, even so I send you." In Romans 20:21. 20, now keep in mind that the original disciples were not the only ones present. There were others, including the Emmaus disciples. Um, they were all. There were many that were in the room, and this commission was not the formal ordination of a church order. Rather, it was a. It was the dedication of his followers to take the world. Let me back up here. It was the dedication of his followers to the task of world evangelism, taking the gospel to the world. We are to take his place in this world. What a tremendous privilege and what a great responsibility. It's humbling to realize, you know what, that Jesus loves us as the Father loves him. We see that in John 15, verse 9, and John 17, verse 26. And we've got to know that in our hearts, that we are in the Father just as He is, just as Jesus is in the Father. See John 17, 21 and 22. It's equally as humbling to realize that He has sent us into the world just as the Father sent Him into the world. And as he was about to ascend to heaven, he again reminded them of their commission to take the message to the whole world. That was their commission. It must have taken the men, it must have given, taken, it must have given the men great joy to realize that in spite of their many failures, their Lord was entrusting them with his word and with his work they had forsaken him and they had fled and now he was sending them out to represent him Peter had denied him three times and yet in a few days Peter would preach the word and he would accuse the the Jews of denying him see Acts chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 and thousands would be saved Jesus came to them and reassured them, but he also he enabled them through the Holy Spirit, as it says in John 20:22, 20, and it reminds us of Genesis 2:7, when God breathed life into the first man. In both Hebrew and Greek, the word for breathe also means spirit. The breath of God in the first creation meant physical life, and the the breath of Jesus Christ in the new creation meant spiritual life. The believers would receive the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost and be empowered for ministry, Acts 14. And also Acts Acts 14. Acts 1, uh, verse 4 and 5. Acts 2, verse 1 through 4. Apart from the filling of the Spirit, they could not go forth to witness effectively. We we need the power and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So that was, uh, that is so much a part of being born again. We have to have that power and it will only come. Jesus said, you know, that he was going to wait away, but he would leave us the Comforter, who is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had dwelt with them in the person of Christ, but now the Spirit would be in them. So look up John 14, verse 17. And then in verse 23 of John 20, must not be interpreted to mean that Jesus gave to a, a select body of people the right to forgive sins and let people into heaven that's not true that's Jesus had spoken similar words before in Matthew 16:19 but he was not setting aside disciples and their Successors as a quote spiritual elite to deal with the sins of the world. No, not at all. Remember, there were others in the room besides the disciples, and Thomas was missing. A correct understanding of the Greek text helps here. And there was a Greek scholar, Dr. Kenneth West, that translates Matthew 16 19. Quote, they have been previously forgiven. So as the early believers went forth into the world, they announced the good news of salvation. If sinners would repent and believe on Jesus Christ, their sins would be forgiven them. And then in Mark 2, 7, it says, who can forgive sins but God only. So all that the Christian can do is announced the message of forgiveness, and God performs the miracle of forgiveness. If sinners will believe on Jesus Christ, we can authoritatively declare to them that their sins have been forgiven. But we are not the ones who provide the forgiveness. But now their fears had vanished, They were sure that the Lord was alive and that he was caring for them. So they gained some courage back. And they had both peace with God and and the peace of God. See Philippians 4, 6, and 7. So they had a high and a holy commission and the power provided to accomplish it. They'd been given the great privilege of bearing the good news of the gospel, the good news of forgiveness to the whole world. All they now had to do was tarry at Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would be given. Now, in verses 26 through 28, Why was Thomas not with the other disciples when they met on the evening of Resurrection Day? You know, that is a question in everybody's mind. Why wasn't he there? Was he so disappointed that he didn't want to be with his friends? When we're discouraged and we're defeated, that's actually when we need our friends all the more and solitude only feeds discouragement and helps it grow into self-pity which is even worse maybe thomas was afraid but john 11:16 seems to indicate that he was basically a courageous man he be willing to go to judea and die with the lord and then in john 14:5 it reveals that thomas was a spiritually minded man who wanted to know the truth and was not ashamed to ask questions. So there seems to have been a pessimistic outlook in Thomas. I just see that as he was, personally, my thought was that he was really down and depressed and that he was just trying to be able to, um, you know, settle everything in his mind as to what had happened things he was trying to just get it all together we call him doubting thomas but you know uh, jesus did not rebuke him for his doubts he rebuked him for unbelief not for his doubts the bible says be not faithless but believing and uh, doubt is often an intellectual problem we want to believe but the faith is overwhelmed maybe by problems and questions. Unbelief is a moral problem. We simply will not believe. So what was it that Thomas could not believe? The reports of the other Christians that Jesus Christ was alive? The verb said, the verb quote said in John 20:25 20, means that the disciples kept saying to him, that they had seen the Lord Jesus Christ alive. No doubt the women and the Emmaus pilgrims also added their witness to this testimony because they had seen him also. On the one hand, we admire Thomas for wanting personal experience, but on the other hand, we must fault him for laying down conditions for the Lord to meet. Like most people in that day, Thomas, he had two names. Thomas is Aramaic and Didymus is Greek. And they both mean twin. So, you know, people ask, well, who was Thomas's twin? We don't know, but sometimes you and I feel like as if it might be us that might be his twins. How often we have refused to Believe and have insisted that God prove himself to us. Think about that because all of us have done it at one time or another or maybe many times. But Thomas is a good warning to all of us not to miss meeting with God's people on the Lord's Day. As see Hebrews 10, through 25. Because Thomas was not there, he missed seeing Jesus Christ hearing his words of peace and receiving his commission and gift of spiritual life. He had to endure a week of fear and unbelief when he could have been experiencing joy. He could have been experiencing peace during that that week. But remember Thomas, when you are tempted to stay home from church, remember Thomas. And I have a testimony about that. I might share right here real fast. Um, yeah, let Thomas be a reminder when you're tempted to stay home from church. You know, I, I just was recalling a time as I'm reading this where I felt so uh, much like staying home from church. I was going through a lot, uh, going through quite a trial, was very discouraged, and... Um, Troubled about some things that I was going through, I was downright discouraged and depressed, to be honest. Um, and I was not going to go to church. I told my husband it was on a Sunday night, and he said that he was he was getting dressed and getting ready, actually getting ready to go to church. And he asked me if I was going to go, and I said, No, I'm not. I don't even I don't want to go. I don't even want to go tonight. I just wanted to be by myself. And um, probably kind of like Thomas, you know, (laughs) that's kind of how I see him. But anyway, uh, let him be your reminder, because I ended up, before my husband walked out the door, I said, wait a minute, I do want to go. And, you know, I had been to church that morning, you know, we went to church Sunday morning and Sunday night, and I'd been there that morning, and I was just just as discouraged if ever, if not even worse than I was that morning and, and decided I was not going to go. And then last minute I said, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with you. And you know, had I not went that night, I would have missed out. I mean, as discouraged as I was, as depressed as I was, my attitude was not even good. The way that I spoke to my husband and I told him, you know, I was discouraged. I said, no, I do not even want to go. I had that kind of attitude. And you know what, you just think the Lord would just like to slap you, but I mean, Jesus is good to us, you know, but what I'm saying is had I not went that night, I think that night I received one of the biggest blessings, not the biggest of my whole life, but one of the biggest blessings, and that was like 2000 and something. Um, and encounters with God in that service that I would have never gotten. I do not believe I would have ever received that had I just stayed home and tried to press through, pray through, or just be discouraged. I wouldn't, I would have missed that blessing. So I encourage you, um, let Thomas be your Encouragement to go to church don't stay home from church we need the church the Lord told us gather together even more as you see that day approaching speaking of the day uh, when Christ will return for the church so you know hang in there don't miss church services go even if you're depressed go even if you're discouraged just be there just be there because he loved you and you love him no matter how discouraged you are. Just honor God and be there. But anyway, we've got to give um, Thomas some credit because he did show up the next week. And the other 10 men, they told Thomas that they'd seen the Lord's hands and his side. So Thomas made, made that the test. Thomas had been where uh, there when Jesus raised Lazarus so why should he question our Lord's own resurrection but he still wanted proof quote seeing is believing Thomas's words help us to understand the difference between doubt and unbelief you know what doubt says i cannot believe that's what doubt says there are too many problems but unbelief says, I will not believe unless you give me the evidence I ask for. In fact, the Greek text there is a double negative. It says, I, posit- excuse me, I positively will not believe. Jesus had heard Thomas's words. Nobody had to report them to him. So the next Lord's Day, the Lord appeared in the room. Again, all the doors are locked, I'm telling you. And Jesus walked right through doors and walls. Anyway, and he dealt personally with Thomas and with Thomas's unbelief. But he still greeted him with shalom, peace. So even Thomas's unbelief could not rob the other disciples of their peace and their joy in the Lord. How gracious our Lord is to stoop to our level of experience in order to lift us where we ought to be. You know my mind keeps going back to that moment that I I went to that church that Sunday night when I I had been going through some severe trials. My mother had been real sick. I was driving back and forth about 50 or 60 miles a day to try to help my mother. I was going through some um, a type of a hormone imbalance, and I uh, was having some panic attacks, and believe me, it was hard to press through all that um, in through prayer, through fasting and prayer, and just seeking the Lord. But I'm telling you what, uh, it brings tears to my eyes, even right now as I think about it. The goodness of God, that going through that, He met me that night at church when. When it was a night where, you know what, I did not even want to go, but I went. I went, like a last-minute decision, and I went in a bad attitude. That was even worse. But he met me there. You know what, he meets us right at the point of our needs. So wherever you're at right now, where you know, if you're in depression, if you're in fear, if you're in... Unbelief, wherever you're at right now, he will meet you there. Just go, go to your secret place, be available to him, make yourself available. Okay, before I get too far off track, the Lord granted Gideon the tests of faith that he requested in Judges chapter 6, verse 36 through 40. And he granted Thomas. His request quest as well. There's no record that Thomas ever accepted the Lord's invitation. and When the time came to, to prove his faith out, Thomas needed no more proof. Our Lord's words translate literally, quote, Stop becoming faithless, but become a believer. Jesus saw a dangerous process at work in Thomas's heart, and he wanted to put a stop to it. The best commentary actually on this is Hebrews 3 where God warns us against an evil heart of unbelief in Hebrews 3 verse 12. It's not easy to understand the psychology of doubt and unbelief. Possibly it's linked to personality traits. That's kind of what I I was thinking about Thomas. It was a part of his personality trait is why he he needed that time to process things. I'm a lot like that. Maybe that's why I saw it that way. I need time to process things. If if Like a while back, a doctor told me I had to have a certain uh, biopsy. And it's like, you know, I'm not doing anything until the Lord tells me to do it for one thing. I'm not doing it till I have peace. And I knew I'd have to pray and hear what God said about it before I would... Uh, submit myself to that doctor. So um, when I had peace, which I, I took, I did not make a decision that day. I went home. I spent about a week in prayer and seeking the Lord, and then I woke up one day and I had the I had the peace of God. It's like go get the the biopsy and get it over with and get it behind me. See what giant you're, you're facing and get on with life. You know, we ain't got time for this stuff. I'm probably not supposed to say ain't, but apologies for that. Some people are more trustful than others. You know, say perhaps Thomas was so depressed that he was, he, maybe he was ready to quit. So he threw out a challenge. Here goes my phone. So he throws out a challenge and never really expected Jesus to accept it. At any rate, Thomas was faced with his own words and he had to he had to make a decision in John 2029. 20, John 20 29 indicates that Thomas's testimony did not come from his touching Jesus. Hear me on this but from his seeing Jesus, amen? Quote, he said, my Lord and my God is the last testimony that John records to the deity of Jesus Christ. The others are John the Baptist, Nathaniel, Jesus himself, Peter, the healed blind man, Martha, and of course, John himself. It's an encouragement to us to know that the Lord had a personal interest in and con- and a personal concern for doubting Thomas. He wanted to strengthen his faith. He did not want him to doubt, and he did, did want, not want him to go down that path of depression or discouragement. He wanted to strengthen his faith and include him in the blessings that lay in store for his followers. Thomas reminds us that unbelief robs us of blessings and it robs us of opportunities. And it may sound sophisticated and and intellectual to question what Jesus did. But such questions are usually evidence of hard hearts, not of searching minds. So Thomas represents a scientific approach, so to speak, to life. And it did work. or it did not work. After all, when a skeptic says, I will not believe unless, he's already admitting that he does believe. For one thing, he believes in the validity of the test or experiment that he has devised. So if he can have faith in his own scientific approach, why can he not have faith in what God has revealed? Amen to that. We need to remind ourselves that everybody lives by faith. The difference is in the object of that faith. Christians put their faith in God and His Word. While unsaved people put their faith in themselves. Let me say that one more time in case somebody did not hear me. The difference is in the object of that faith. Christians put their faith in God and His Word, while unsaved people put their faith in themselves. In John chapter 20, verses 29 and 31, John could not end his book without bringing the resurrection miracle to his own readers. So, you know, we can't look at Thomas and the other disciples and envy them as the as though the power of Christ's resurrection could never be experienced in our lives today, because it can be. That's why John wrote the Gospel, so that people in every age could know, could know that Jesus is God and that faith in Him brings everlasting life. It is not necessary to see with our eyes, Jesus Christ, in order to believe. Yes, it was a blessing for the early Christians to see the Lord and to know that he was alive, but this is not what saved them. They were saved not by seeing, but they were saved by believing. So the emphasis throughout the Gospel of John is on believing. There are nearly 100 references in the Gospel of John to believing on Jesus Christ. You and I today cannot see Christ, nor can we see him perform miracles and signs and wonders that John, the ones that John wrote about in his book. But the record is there, and that is all that we need is that record. We just need to believe it. So then faith... We can go back to that again, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10:17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Praise the Lord, is it not wonderful to hear about the Word of God? Is it not wonderful to read the Word of God and hear it with our ears? As you read John's record, you come face to face with Jesus, how he lived, what he said, and what he did. All the evidence points to the conclusion that he is indeed God come in the flesh, the savior of the world. The signs that John selected and described in his book are proof of the deity of Christ. They're important. But sinners are not saved by believing in miracles. They are saved by believing on Jesus Christ. You can believe in miracles all you want, but it doesn't make you born again. You're not saved by believing in miracles. We are saved by believing on Jesus Christ and what Jesus did at Calvary. Many of the Jews in Jerusalem believed on Jesus because of his miracles, But Jesus, he did not believe in them. See John 2, 23 through 25. Great crowds followed Jesus because of his miracles. John 6, verse 2. But in the end, most of them left him for good. John 6, 66. Even the religious leaders who plotted his death believed that he did miracles. But this, quote, faith did not save them. Let's keep that in mind. That kind of faith did not save them. Faith in his miracles should lead to faith in his word and to to personal faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Jesus himself pointed out that faith in his works or his miracles was but the first step toward faith in the word of God. So it's a good thing to have faith in those miracles and and the good works because it's going to lead you to faith in the Word of God. But the sinner must hear with his ears the Word if he is to be saved. must hear it in his heart, must hear it. You know what I'm saying? Really hear. There was no need for John to describe every miracle that our Lord performed in fact, he supposed that a, a complete record could never be written, as it says in John twenty one twenty five. The life and ministry of Jesus was simply too, too just too rich, too full for any writer to ever have written all that was ever done and all that was ever said. But a complete record is not necessary anyway. All the basic facts are here. For us to read and for us to consider. There is sufficient truth for any sinner to believe and be saved in the Bible. The subject of John's Gospel is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He presented a threefold proof of this our Lord's works, our Lord's walk, and our Lord's words. So in this gospel, you see Jesus performing miracles, you watch him living a perfect life in the midst of his enemies, and you hear him speaking words that nobody else can speak. Either Jesus was a madman or he was deluded, or he was all that he claimed to be. And while some of his enemies did call him deranged and deluded, the majority of people who watched him And and the majority that listened to him, concluded that he was unique, unlike anyone else they had ever known. How could a madman or a deluded man accomplish what Jesus accomplished? When people trusted him, their lives were transformed. That doesn't happen when you trust a madman or a deceiver. He claimed to be God come in the flesh, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And that is what he is. John was not content simply to explain a subject. He was an evangelist who wanted to achieve an object. He wanted his readers to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. He was not writing a biography to entertain or a history to enlighten people. He was writing to change men's lives. Take the word life, quote, life. Life is one of John's key words. He uses it at least 36 times in his gospel. Jesus offers sinners abundant life and eternal life. And the only way that that they can get it is through personal faith in him. If sinners need life, then the implication is that they are dead. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, it says, And you hath he quickened, or made alive, or resurrected, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So you who don't believe need to hold on to this scripture. You you hath he quickened made alive, resurrected, who were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Salvation is not resuscitation. Salvation is resurrection, John 5.24. The lost sinner is not sick, weak, or any such thing. He is dead. And this life comes through his, His name. Only through Jesus' name. There's only one way. In John's gospel, the emphasis is on his name. Quote, I am. All the way through the gospel of John. Jesus makes seven great I am statements in this gospel. Offering the last, excuse me, offering the lost sinner all that he needs. Eternal life is not, say, endless time for even Lost people are going to live forever in hell. Eternal life means the very life of God experienced today. It is a quality of life, not a quantity of time. It is the spiritual experience of heaven on earth today. The Christian does not have to die to have this eternal life because the Christian possesses it in Christ today. The ten disciples were changed from fear to courage, and Thomas was changed from unbelief to confidence. Now John invites you to trust Jesus Christ and be changed from death to eternal life. So I'd like to say to you today, if you have already made this life-changing decision, give thanks to God for the precious gift of eternal life. But if you have never made this decision, it's time to do so right now because time is short and Jesus is coming soon. He that believes on the Son, let me close with this verse, John 3:36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So in saying that, I'm going to close. But in closing, let me say that, Father, I just ask you for each and every one that just heard this message of the gospel in chapter 20, I pray that these words and these seeds will not fall to the ground but that each and every one of them, not one will be lost, not one will be stolen, but these seeds would just enter in and do what your word is intended to do in each and every person that studied this chapter with me. And I thank you for that, O God, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.